evening. Welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show today with my co-host Guy and special guest Adrian Ballou. Good. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks. Zappa. Starting early in the beginning, your discovery of Zappa is really the first thing, which is kind of incredible. Well, he walked into a club that I was playing in with a band and uh, saw me playing for about 40 minutes and got my name and number. And six months later, he auditioned me, flew me out to his house in the Hollywood Hills, and my life was utterly changed. <laughs> playing with him, clearly at that time, there was not a lot of players like him, and, and there still isn't. I mean, it's, it puts an imprint on your DNA. Do you feel it's really affected your style? Because I hear, like, anybody who's ever played with Zappa, I feel like afterwards, the first few albums kind of feel like it has that sound, like a like an influence. Yeah, he influenced the first couple of records, not my playing so much as my writing a little bit. I first couple of records, Lone Rhino, Twang Bar King, my solo records, I thought, well, I like the idea of, of putting humor in music. Right. And maybe I went a little overboard with it in a Zappa-esque way. Uh, but after that, you know, I joined King Crimson and all the humor evaporated. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to the punch in that one. Well, I do feel like, like, like Keneally and Steve Vai, like all the first albums are very, very creative. Like it, there yeah. are no, there are no bounds, like for a new artist with a new album, they're just out there. And, and that's something your first album was very creative also like that, you know. Well, you have years and years of ideas and things you've been working up. I, I started playing guitar, taught myself at 16, just to be a songwriter, not to be a guitar player. Hmm. And so, let's see, 30 years later, when I was recording The Lone Rider, I mean, at age 30, 14 years later, by then I had a, you know, had a su sufficient backlog of things I wanted to express. Songwriting for you at this point, is it a challenge? Is it just something that just pours out of you? Like, what are you doing with your song right now? I mean, because you've been with it's so many different artists. It's both. You know, this is my 25th solo record. Plus, I made a bunch of records with the Bears and King Crimson and other things like that. So it's still challenging, but I've gotten better and better at it. And I used to really struggle with lyric writing. That was the hardest thing to do in those 33 years with King Crimson, for example. But that's not true anymore. I invented something called Flux, I don't know, seven years ago, mm -hmm. where I just put in songs and the songs were how much ever I had. You know, if it's a verse and a chorus, you're done. If that's if you've said everything, you're done. And in doing it that way, it taught me how to to write quickly. Write, you know, I, I wrote hundreds of things to put in that that uh, it was an app, of course, and uh, that app has hundreds of things in it. So I just moved one thing pretty quickly, and you know, I didn't uh, belabor it and didn't think about it too much. Whereas when I was earlier in my writing career. Lyrics were harder for me. Now the whole process has opened up. Well, do you feel obviously lyrics when you were in a band with like Fripp and everybody else that was more focused, more more serious, more like it was, you feel like you had more eyes on you to be than just being like you. You wanted to be part of a community writing? Well, yes. The the solo records are just me being me. Uh, but the King Crimson records, you're you're writing, you're you're actually talking for another group of people. And so you want to be careful what you say, what the subject matter is, not too personal, not too, uh, you know, you don't want to embarrass uh, Tony Levin <laughs> or anyone else for that matter. But they always supported me. And I, so I always tried to rise to that level. You know, that's a it's a funny thing being a lyricist in King Crimson. You really I never get credit for it. If you go to any lyric site, you'll never see 
these lyrics, you know, Elephant Talk or Walking on Air or Dinosaur, any of those, never credited to me. They're always credited to the band. But the truth of the matter is I spent way more time on that than I did the music. Uh, the music, I figured out how to do the tough stuff, you know, and mm -hmm. wrote, wrote with it and adjusted my sights to that. But I would spend hundreds of hours on the, on the lyrics. And uh, it's a shame. In the first King Crimson, they had a lyricist. Pete Sinfield, and he did get credited, but I never have. <laughs> That's one of my beefs, person. People just go to all the lyric sites and say, hey, put Adrian's name on the lyrics. It's a lyric site. And and you were the only one that really, besides the original lyricist, that wrote your own lyrics for Crimson. Yeah, 33 years. Every song I wrote the melodies and uh, and all the lyrics to any, any Crimson song from Discipline on wow. through the rest of the new albums. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a beef. I would have a problem with that too. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, you know, I hey, you know, I get plenty of credit for so many things. So, but it's a little thing that sometimes well, niggles at me. <laughs> well, the thing is, like with Crimson, the fans know. Just like with Zap, I mean, you've been in with players that are very, very, you know, you have a strong audience. Each of them, they're very niche, they're very dedicated. Yeah. It's like a it's like a legion or an army, even. You know what I mean? Where exactly. people argue over things in the form over certain opinions and. You know, it gets goofy. So at least it you have does, right there. You know, with uh, with the internet and social media, you know, I end up accidentally or otherwise reading some of these things, <laughs> and uh, most of them are very, very supportive. And I love my fans, but you somehow sometimes you get these guys who are in there that think they know something and they they know nothing, and, and they say all the wrong things. When I went to Russia with uh, the first time in two thousand two, I think it was with King Crimson. I've never been to Russia, neither had King Crimson. And we had a big sort of, uh, um, you know, meeting of all the press and it, Robert didn't show up. So it was just me, Bill and me, me Pat and Trey. And uh, there was a big to do about that. I said, I wrote the lyrics and the songs and the Russian press totally did not they, they freaked out. They said, no, no, right. Robert writes everything. So you think he tells Bill Bruford how to play drums? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody tells Bill how to play drums. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, this is silly stuff, but these oh, are exactly. things you have to put up with. But I, uh, you know, just to clear this over, I, my 33 years with King Crimson was fabulous for me because, you know, it was a brand of music that I loved before. I was any on anybody's stage and and it was my second favorite band only second only to the Beatles so then one day I woke up and I'm in that band and for 33 years it was a big challenge and a lot of fun it must have just upped your game every single day to play with Tony and Bill and Robert I mean Robert pretty much lived here this is my studio he pretty much lived in the guest quarters that's through that door there for months at a time while we made those records Really, mm -hmm. I was always Practicing. a King Crimson fan, but those the albums that you did with Crimson were the best. That was the best, you know, era of Crimson for sure. No, I think this. I think it that too because I think the earlier ones have dated themselves a bit more. But mm -hmm. uh, the nineteen eighty one tree uh, quartet really has not dated itself. No. Uh, you listen to Discipline and it could have been made yesterday and it would still be very impressive because somehow we did something no one had done before. We didn't really 
know that we were doing it. <laughs> Maybe Robert did. I didn't. I just was working hard. But uh, once it was all said and done, you know, I get that from a lot of fans, a lot of fans, and especially a lot of musicians tell me how that record impacted their lives, which is probably the biggest reward you can get. It definitely is. And, and in between all the different versions, you also play with other musicians. I mean, Talking Heads, David Bowie. And as you said earlier, you have a David Bowie project earlier later on this year we're going to talk about. Share a little bit about David working with David Bowie, and you're like the musical director too, so pretty cool stuff. Well, I did two tours with him. The first one was early on from Zappa. I joined uh, David Bowie. That was 78 and 79. Uh, then I, how many years went by? 11, I guess. And then suddenly I got a call from him one day saying he was going to do a big world tour, 27 countries. And would I be the music director, guitarist, and bring along my own band? Wow. Which was, you know, incredible. My band almost, they almost passed out when I told them. <laughs> And so, yeah, we went, uh, we did 108 shows, went around the world a lot, had Lee Iacocca's private jet and everything. It was, it was rock star heaven. It's, you know, like the best it ever gets. Uh, And during that one, I got really close with, with David because uh, we had a $12 million stage that had to be set up everywhere we went. We had a almost 60 people in the crew doing that and setting up video things and all kinds of opera crims and it was so it was a big task just to put on each single show which meant we would go say to Spain and the first day second day there in whatever city we were off we'd play on the third day so that gave me and David a lot of time to hang out and go to museums and dinners and things and so we really became very good friends I love him so much just like I love Frank the um for, for the musical director of that, like, what would that involve? I know, obviously, coordinating songs, but I mean, on a bigger picture, like. Well, as a music director, we had a small band, and David wanted to keep it a four, let's see, one, two, three, four-piece band, yeah. Uh, with just me and him on stage. The, the rest of the band was behind an opera scrim, and really? uh, you, you couldn't see them. So the task really was to take the songs, arrange them for that and still make them sound similar to the originals in most as many ways as you can. Put them in the right keys, the right arrangements and so mm-hmm. forth. So that came at a time when there was when sampling came around. We we suddenly were buying all these sampling machines and you know, so so that we could sound like an orchestra, or we could have saxophone sections, whatever we wanted, they were being sampled. So this little four-piece band, you know, we'd come out, we'd start with ground control to major time. And there'd be a huge orchestra playing with us. It sounded great, amazing. And so that was the that was the big thing for me was to manage through forty songs to to arrange them in a way that uh, would come off really well, even though it was a small band. Did David actually take you away from Frank? I know that at the end of touring with Frank at that time, he was going to go start you know, editing and mixing the Baby Snakes video. And he was going to be yeah. off in a matter of months. That's, that's when David uh, came in and offered you the gig? That's right. That's in 1978 and 79. What we were just talking about is 1990 yeah, Sound yeah. and Vision Tour. But yeah, in 79, we went, uh, Frank, uh, we went with Frank to a European tour for two months. Uh, what happened, we were in Cologne and Brian Eno was in the audience. 
he knew that David was looking for a new guitar player for his upcoming tour. So two nights later, we were in Berlin. That's where David lived at the time. David came to the show. I saw him off the, at the uh, monitor mixer. I walked over and said hi to him. And he said, how'd you like to be in my band? <laughs> so <laughs> and what, I, what eventually transpired, because I was, you know, I loved Frank. And I, I've, you know, I felt funny not continuing with him. But I went to him a few days later when I found out that it was an actual offer. My manager told me, yes, this is for real. So I went to the back of the bus and Frank was sitting there and I said, I know you're going to take four months off. You've told us that and you're going to pay us a retainer to do nothing. And, you know, or I've got this offer from David Bowie for four months of touring. What do you think I should do? And I totally left it up to him and he said, well, I think you should go do the Bowie thing and then come back. And I said, okay, great. We shook hands on it. That's the way Frank operated. Right. And the, the thing is, though, when he got back, he had fired his band. He started mm -hmm. a new band. He went back right back out on tour. So he didn't do what he was going to do. And on the David Bowie side, uh, David's tour just kept getting extended further and further and ended up being a year and a half. So I never got to go back with Frank. But every time I would visit for, you know, visit him anytime I went to to uh, Los Angeles. Anytime I was there, I took Bill Bruford up there one day at the studio, and we we sat around and talked with Frank. It was really great. So we we remained really, you know, good friends. Um, but his wife never forgave me. <laughs> really? Yeah, Gail. Gail was, you know, she was his manager and took care of him. And really, I mean, I understood it. She was looking out for him, and here he had, you know shown me the ropes and you know three months of rehearsal spent money on on me you know cultivating me for his band and then I was gone so I did always feel bad about that but uh Frank didn't he didn't seem to care I know you were a self-taught musician and um I know you got thrown into those rehearsals which would with Frank had to be like forget about it it, it had to be so intimidating well, yes, it was extremely intimidating. I did nothing for but Frank Zappa 24-7 for three whole months. But everyone else, you know, had uh, got sheets of music every Monday. We rehearsed Monday through Friday, eight to ten hours, very strong, hardcore rehearsals. On Friday night, though, I would go home with Frank. They would come and pick him up in the car, and I would, I would go with him and stay at his house. So over that weekend, he would be showing me the things that I need to be memorizing by rote so that the next Monday morning, the bands would get those, the new pieces of music and I would already have a, a leg up a little oh. bit. <laughs> oh, so you actually went back to the house. So it was almost like you became part of the family. Like you were kind of not just a member of the knucklehead group of all the crazy guys. You were a little bit more under the wing. Uh, all the other guys in the band were LA guys. Right. And they were, you know, they were players. They'd been around, you know, they'd worked with the Brecker brothers and many other tours and things. And, a few, quite a few of them had been with with uh, Frank for a long time, so mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I was definitely the new kid on the block, and I don't think they really wanted to hang out with me. Uh, I didn't even have a car, so I wasn't the easiest person to hang out. So I hung out with Frank, <laughs> and even when the tour started, I would sit next to him on the plane and stuff, and watch him write some musical notes out or whatever, and talk to him and his bodyguard. So that was our little trio, me and John Smothers and Frank. We'd eat breakfast together. It was great. You know, I mean, whatever you might think of Frank Zappa, you might think he's a hardcore guy or maybe very, I don't know. People have 
hard to work with. I've heard everything about him. Mm-hmm. Not true for me. For me, he was, uh, he really did take me under his wing. That's a good way to put it. He was my mentor and he was generous with me, opened his house to me. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really great. And, you know, the thing was, wow, how brilliant he was and how funny. It was a, I, it was a pleasure to be around him. I've never got a uh, feeling. I do a, a show, many episodes I've done with, um, with Weasel. So I've gotten mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, uh, feedback about his, him and his dad and the whole behind the scenes and stuff. And um, no, Frank's very giving. I, mean, I think people take because he was very serious and focused and, and, and being with his rock and roll. You just didn't want the shenanigans. He wanted to work, either work or your door or the, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's it. And some people just t- took that as being, you know, not fun and, you know, whatever. It's I, I understood it completely. And that was, you're right. It was, uh, I want you to, what I want you to do is, play my music consistently and correctly and right. it's not about you it's about right. you doing that and i needed that at that point i had never had anyone show me anything and all of a sudden i was having to play all these odd time signatures and things and so i needed the instruction and and uh, i was really happy as could be about that and then of course went from there through a lot of different things that i think benefited from my time with Frank. I would have mm-hmm. never been able to write the things that I wrote or even right now with uh, King Crimson, uh, I don't think, unless I'd had that instruction from Frank. But anyway, I made Dream Blue. <laughs> Let's talk about me. <laughs> well, this is all about you. All, the school rock is how you've evolved because you've done so much and you're so talented in so, in so many different pieces now. The fact you've done 25 albums, like how how could you keep it up? I mean, some people you have like three or four songs. That's it. I mean, you're, you've been in some of the biggest bands and still. Well, I always uh, felt like whatever I was doing with whomever else, there was always this other thing I was had off to the side, which was the music I was writing for my next solo record. So um, if, if I was in King Crimson, I could separate it out and say, well, this is a Crimson thing. It, usually because Robert and I would start that material together. And this is an Adrian thing. So um, it kind of shocked me to find out just, uh, I don't know, a couple of months back, uh, I was looking at the our site on Bandcamp and I counted up the records and realized, oh my gosh, this is the 25th solo record. So I'm proud of that. It's a real milestone. I mean, the, how does this happen? Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm creative as can be. I just never stop. I've got a studio sitting here. I've, I've got an engineer, you know, I've got to pay for things. I got to do it. I, and I love doing it. So uh, it's my payoff. The best thing for me personally in all of this is when I finally have finished a piece of music or a song, it's done. Everything that was in my head is now there. I can listen to it. And that's an incredible moment when it all finally comes together. And that's the big reward for me. When you're, you have so much material, a history of other bands when you're putting together a tour, how are you picking your sets, getting it together and preparing, like, you know, we're going to go with all that. Well, you know, the last tour we did was 2019 and I, I um, inducted another member just so we could have two guitars and keyboards and more vocals based on the fact that I wanted to just go through the whole career and include something from David and something from Frank as a, you know, a, as a respectful thing. Uh, so I felt like I did that on the last tour. Now I'm back to 
doing my things. You know, I mean, I've got, as you say, I've got so much material and here it is a brand new record. I'm going to be playing five new songs from that record. So when you really sort it out in the end, there isn't a lot of space for me to do anything Hmm. other than my material. And I could play, if I played everything my fans would like me to play, I'd probably play seven hour shows. (laughs) (laughs) That's three sets, three long sets, like a, (laughs) like a regular touring musician. Um, I do want to take a size step. I think this is the video I just saw you doing drive your guitar that you use. The yeah. Little hockey. Can we talk about that guitar? It's, it's crazy. It's awesome. It's uh, in my opinion, it was, it was the, the newest thing since the invention of the Fender Stratocaster and the, the Les Paul, which all guitars are branches of, but Ken <laughs> Parker is a genius. He spent 20 years trying to figure out all the inherent problems in guitars. They, mm-hmm. they go out of tune. You have to adjust the necks. The frets have to be worked. All kinds, of, all kinds of problems. He solved all of those problems and put it into this light, five-pound, ex- sort of a modern sculpted thing called the Parker Fly. And for years, I wanted to use that. Uh, they had given me one right off the bat. Um, and I loved it. It just made me play better. But I couldn't use it because my songs depended so much on MIDI and things Uh, like that. So finally it dawned on me, huh, why don't you call him and ask him about putting MIDI in the guitar? And surprisingly, he said, well, we that's the guitar was designed for that. But at the last minute, we chickened out (laughs) because it already was so, you know, advanced. We we thought, you know, let's don't take it too far. We can put the MIDI in later. So. Long story short, they then went into development with me to put everything on the guitar uh, electronically that I needed. Other than that, the guitar was exactly a Parker Fly as he designed it. I had nothing to do with the design there. I merely updated the electronics for for my needs. And that became the Adrian Ballou Parker Fly model. They made 50 of them, $10,000 each. It's It's a very long process to make that guitar. It's it's sculpted in an incredible way. Um, in fact, it is wood, it's basswood, but they coat the back of it with a thin layer of some sort of uh, epoxy mm-hmm. um, and put it in an oven and cook it. <laughs> and when they cook it, it, it makes the tensile strength of the wood 10,000 times stronger. So you can actually stand on the neck of the guitar and it's not going to bow or break or anything. I do it all the time in my kitchen. What? I stand around on the guitar. Uh, so, you get um, anxiety just thinking about standing on the neck of any guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's my point is that, you know, this guitar just, I don't know, it just plays better, feels better. Um, it resonates it sounds really so different. Perfectly. It sounds so different. It's sexy. It's, it's just it's spacey. It's nice. Well, what, what I'm doing now is I'm going to split my guitar time between the Parker Fly, which is my MIDI guitar, and uh, a set of new Stratocasters. I always always have loved Stratocasters, in my opinion, another fabulous guitar. I've had three new ones made for me by the Fender Custom Shop. And for when I don't need the MIDI stuff, like, for example, right now, I'm, I'm doing a festival uh, in about three or four weeks with me and Jerry Harrison doing Remain in Light, uh, mm-hmm. that rec- record with a 10-piece band. And I don't need MIDI for that. So I use a Stratocaster for that. 
So on my future touring and things, live live shows, and even in my studio when I work, I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth between the two instruments. But I think in uh, at some point, maybe we'll even try to make it an Adrian Ballou model because Parker is gone. They uh, they were bought out by a company in Canada who instantly put them on the shelf and you've never heard anything from them since. And I can't even get a part for any of those things. They, they, yeah, I, I've been trying to get parts for someone's guitar, uh, a Parker Fly, and you can't get those. It, no. It, Tough it's to, it, it's to me as if it, it's like if the Ferrari suddenly went out of business and there was yeah. no parts. As I always used to say, it's like it's like the Ferrari of electric guitars. It just is so modern and so revolutionary. And uh, not that I, you know, so light, locking tuners, everything. Yeah. The tremolo system is yeah. a whole different way of doing it, and uh, that's that's Ken Parker. You know, he's he's, he, he's a uh, a, an amazing luthier, but also a genius in many other ways. He's a scientist, basically. So he solved all those problems. Anyway, yeah, I, I love both of those things. Uh, I, I love Gibson stuff too, but I, I've got a few Gibson guitars. I used one in particular on the, on a couple of the songs in uh, the Elevator record because they have different tones. You know, the reason you have different guitars that they got different characteristics or different right. tones they feel different you know you have a 12 string you have a gretch you have they're all different uh and i i have a you know plenty of them and i just pick ones de depending on what the need is uh but when i go on tour i can only bring two let's be honest so <laughs> <laughs> well you can make a little more if you want it's actually it's funny actually yeah guy actually owns a, a record uh a music store so he's got his hands on all the gear himself so nobody knows oh. about that yeah i think um, i have a, a a music store in my three storage units <laughs> it's everything i ever had is <laughs> you don't let it anywhere go you keep it all right Nah, I, i'm someday i'm gonna sort it out and and you know let some other people have it and take care of it but i mean it's it's daunting i don't really have the time to do that and uh I don't know, but how many yeah, do you have? How many guitars would you think you have roughly? Sixty or seventy. Wow. I have, um, like, I have the original guitar synth that we played on the Discipline record. I have all that stuff. I have a Bill Bruford drum kit. Wow. The, ye the yellow drum kit that Bill Bruford used on the uh, in the double trio. Mm -hmm. And if you have or have seen the uh, Japan DVD of that period in the 90s, he's using it on that. Yep. I have that in storage. But guess what? I'm going to let my drummer use it on this tour. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, but it's going to be really fun. All the drummers are going to go, ah! <laughs> it's, it's, I think Bill will be okay. He's not drumming anymore, so I think it'll be okay. I no, just spoke to him. Uh, he doesn't care about drum kits. He never did. Huh? No, he, he never really kept his drum kits. He said, yeah, you take them back. I don't want them. I mean, Bill is like that. You know, some guys... He wrote for the song. ...everything. Yeah. He um, but, was just on. He was talking about that. How he, just, he didn't give it his kits or anything. You know, he talked about playing with you guys, how great it was, you know. Yeah. He just put out his uh, retrospective of like 70 songs of his career. Yeah. So we were talking about you got all you guys in Crimson and stuff, so... Uh, I love Bill, and the only problem is we don't get to see each other. That's that's the sadness of being in a great band for like that for so many years. When everything goes, it's a different way. Then 
I mean, I don't get to Surrey, England every day. <laughs> so it's tough to keep. And I'm not a big phone person, to be honest. I, I, right. I'm always busy. I've always got stuff going on in my head. And I, I can't take out a lot of time to just chat. You know, right. I'm not a chatter. Do you I'm know a chatterbox, I, I, but not a I, chatter. <laughs> well, with the, with the career process, is really great. because Every band you've been in and your solo stuff, it, you, you're not just like noodling away with doing nothing. You, you, it's all about the composition. The song is always bigger. That's the way I view it when I hear your stuff. And Crimson yeah. is always bigger than the artist. When you see King Crimson, you're not thinking of like a superstar. I mean, you know the the players as a musician, as a fan of music, but you're not thinking of this is a so-and-so so It's it's a project. It's, a, it's, it's an album. It's a song. It's four people melding together. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's an amazing, you know, it's amazing when you have the right ingredients like that, what can, what can and was accomplished, but, you're right. I think the compositional stuff for me and Robert, because we would right. always sit down and start something together, uh, was always very paramount. And kind of every time we went into the next record, we're like, oh, boy, they got to reinvent the wheel again. Because <laughs> we were pretty serious about it. So if, you know, a, a, a new Crimson record usually took about three years of work before it wow. actually went in the studio and was made. That's a long but, time. That's it is a long time, but but not just with Crimson. I'm saying with everything, all your solo stuff too. I mean, I haven't heard all 25. It's just so much to go through. But I've heard a good handful of it, and and it's all composition. I mean, even if, even if it's a funner song, you know, or Oh Daddy or something, or you're, or yeah. you know, it's still about the song. And then everything else. Yeah, well, is like, like I said, I, you know, I started as a songwriter, and I still am. You know, whether whether I started with some sounds or whatever, I. The, the the end result is always going to be well. I've got to compose this and make something that's musically right for it. So if I invent a new guitar sound like a rhinoceros or something, I've got to give a give it a place to live that makes yep. musical sense. Uh, otherwise, it's a gimmick. Um, and you know, I took three years to write a symphonic piece, which is called E. And then I actually was able to do it with a symphony. It was blew my mind because that is a big thing, you know, especially for someone like me who doesn't read. Here I was, I was sitting in You front. don't read music either? Does anybody read music? <laughs> um, That's amazing. I think every, everyone else in King Crimson did. No. But I, okay. I, I've never, you know, I don't, you know, I've taught, I'm self-taught on all the instruments I play. Everything I do is self-taught. <laughs> Even uh, over COVID, I taught myself to do digital paintings and, if you see the elevator package, the mm-hmm. CD, the reason I ask people to try to get that is because it's got 38 of my digital paintings in it. I, I tried to entice people <laughs> to want to get the CD. You know, downloading is good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. But downloading, I think, is like a little vacuous in the sense that you, you don't have anything to hold or look at. You have nothing to read. I like the way I like to have everybody know the words and read the words while they listen. I and uh, of course, now that I put all these digital paintings in there, maybe that'll help. The record well, is coming out coming out really well. People are going crazy over my fans on Facebook are writing, uh, glor- you know, just fabulous things about it. So I think it's a special record. I don't know, you know, maybe it's because of the COVID thing, because during that period, I think it reset everybody's clock in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's when I made the record. Uh, that's all I had to do. I had to keep creating, you know, and eventually when I was able to get with my engineer and record that, that broke open everything for me. And so 
then I was just going crazy over this record. And it was the, it was one of the few records I've ever had where uh, there was no interruption. I wasn't about to go on tour and I wasn't doing someone else's project. I was just concentrating on this record. So it's very special, I think. And the fact that then I discovered it would be my 25th solo record made it even more special to me. So I think there's something interesting about it. It does touch on a little bit in humorous ways on the, 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 the horror of COVID, you know, the COVID drought, as I call it. And there was, you know, it was a hard time for everybody. And of course, even harder for the families who lost yeah. people and things like that, of course. But so it's my it's my COVID record. And uh, I'm really proud of it. Well, it, it's good. And I mean, I think COVID really put everybody, all the musicians were always like, I, I do a better album, but I have to go out and tour. Like everybody's had a reason why like, it was holding back to their album being perfect. And then all of a sudden the gauntlet was laid out, you know. Yeah. You guys have this time. Now what? let's see what you can do with it, you know. Yeah. You know, and you made a good time. I with went yours. into it with this idea that when you came, I didn't know what would happen. No one did with COVID. But when we came out of it, I suspected that everyone would need something uplifting in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to make a record that did that. That's why I called it Elevator. I wanted to sort of elevate your mood with this record. And I think it does that. All my fans are saying, yeah, that's what it does. You listen to it, you just feel better. It's yeah. You want to put it on again. So, you know, I'm not trying to sell records here. I'm only expressing no, this what This show about promoting people that I love, and you have a new album. Well, yeah. And, yeah, and I, I mean, hear your influence. I would love people to get it, of course. You know, yeah. uh, it's a special thing for me. But um, everyone who's getting it so far, is the response is enormous, so. I'm not saying something I to just to sell something is all I'm saying. But, but on the other hand, uh, I wish everyone would get it. I wish everyone <laughs> could hear it, you know, at least, yeah. you know. Uh, and in my world, which is a pretty, pretty, what's the word? It's it's just a couple of people, me and my wife, doing all the work. Insulated. So, um, yeah. DIY, so in my you world, yourself, you know, yeah. it's it's important that people do support the stuff mm-hmm. I, you know, I guess if you're a huge star, it's not that important, but if you're doing everything, paying for everything, going on the tour, you're doing all that mm-hmm. stuff and nobody shows up or well, you're, you're in trouble. That won't happen, I guess, but. <laughs> no, well, the show started during COVID because of that, actually of, of reaching out, me reaching out to artists. I mean, I was okay with my life, but I know artists were unable to tour in the whole process. And I wanted to keep, Speaking to artists and, and reminding fans, they have merchandise, they have albums, you know, support, follow. Thank you, know, you for doing that. I, I really greatly appreciate that. You know. One of the things that sometimes I think about is how badly the music business itself screwed up. They let it happen that music is now free. Yep. The film industry mm-hmm. didn't do that. The film industry didn't suddenly say, okay, everybody can go to the theaters and see our films for free. No, but the music business did. And it's like they say, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Now everybody suddenly thinks that, you know, well, over time now, everybody thinks music is just free, right? Well, Well, I'm sorry sorry to tell you, but that doesn't work. That's not sustainable because it's not free for us artists to make it. No, the the model's not good. It's the record labels became banks. You know what I mean? They just became banks and they chased whatever somebody found a good hit. Then they all ran to that. And then they ran to that. 
once the the early Clive Davis is in the early seventies, and I love vinyl and guy or vinyl. We talk about vinyl, and you 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 didn't have the three the three albums. You didn't have the tours, the nurturing the artists, the greed set in, and it became you know just cash. Each album was almost like just there's counting the money, no artist support, and it allowed it to eat itself. So by the time you know the eighties. And then you started taking compact discs and you started crushing the music down and making the song listen to cassettes, what was like a big page that nobody could read. You were slowly mm-hmm. taking the art and the creativity out of it. Yep. And, and, and you're taking loans against the band, was taking loans against you that they were investing that you couldn't pay. And then you're putting their albums on the shelf because you were mad at another label. And then Napster, it was just right for the take. Yep. Like Napster didn't do it, the record labels did it to themselves. Yeah, they did. And it, it truly was about greed and, and having no vision of of or interest right. even in, in what the artist needs or should should be getting right. from it. Um, no nurturing, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1992, my wife and I saw the writing on the wall and we, we put out our, my first uh, acoustic record ourselves. Yeah. And from that point on, we maybe have had one or two situations where we've let a record put it out a, a company put something out for dis- distribution right but other than that all these all these years now we've we've done it all ourselves we are we are the record label that's that's we, we are the online store we we do the whole thing so it's a lot more work on you on your back yeah. but the thing is i mean i never i never found anyone in the record label who could figure out how to market what i do and I think that's absurd because I make songs that can be sung and memorized like anybody else, you know, and people walking around singing, oh, daddy, but you can't, you you can't do anything more with it. So, well, it's serious, but like Zappa is easy, but I'm saying now Crystal's easier to put in a category, I think different, like, but with your music, it was serious, but it was also fun. And you're like, yeah. wait, what's serious? It's not parody, but it's fun. You can't be happy no. and have technical. What? <laughs> you know, and, and. How do you put money? How do you how do they make a lot of money off that? That's kind of niche. Yeah, I know. You know, I I do know that that's the situation, and it's you know it's my fault. <laughs> Not a fault. It's it's special, and that's why we're talking right now. This is why me and Guy are big fans of you because that's who you are, and that's what you put out. You know, um, but I the model has come out. A lot of artists like you and I speak to all the time. Hundreds is that do it just like you. If you focus in like you are, you, you make more money than any of these ever big label things are doing. Because you're just with your your select people, your select audience is focused, right. your focus group, and you're not trying right. to hit like buckshot at a barn and trying to oh, spend money on all this crazy yeah. stuff that's useless. You focus on your audience, and it's become yeah. a family. And, it and is it, a family. You know, I feel so close to my fans, and I see them all the time. Some of them come to my camp every year. I see them at all the shows. I read the, every comment they they make on my Facebook page, and I often mm-hmm. answer them and interact with them because I know they are the people who really matter for me because they really do like what I do. And I'm not complaining at all about any of that stuff. I'm just making, I'm just making. No, you're not. I, I, I like it, to complain it, about it. For other sure. artists that, that haven't been able to figure it out, but you know, over the years we figured out how to survive and, and thrive actually. You know, I want to you have say a tour for, actually too. You're a tour too. You got coming up yeah. on a, Talk about that a little bit too while we're talking about you thriving, surviving, and getting people out there. Well, that's important. Um, This is going to be a really unique, different show for me. I've put, I've made it so that 
it starts kind of with the band, the trio. It's a power trio. My, my same bass player mm-hmm. I've had for 16 years, Julie Slick, and a new young drummer named Johnny Luca, who is a great drummer, good, really good singer. His voice blends with mine a lot. So the first thing that's going to happen is we're going to come out and play a short set that's song-based, songs that uh, okay. you know, maybe the power trio has not done before, and maybe you know there's a new one, there's a bear song in there. Then I'm going to take about a 20-minute... Uh, I'm going to do about a 20-minute solo acoustic set, and that's going to include some of the new material, too, and, you know, kind of get it really more personal and intimate. Yeah. Then we're going to take a break so everybody can go out into the lobby and buy the, the, the record. <laughs> and the shirt back, and the merch. Come back in, and then the power trio that we've had for years and years is going to explode because that's what yeah. we're going to start doing all the crimson stuff and all the hardcore, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh so by the end of the night, it's on fire. Well, that's the contour of this. Some, sometimes the contour that uh, I've made for a show is you blast out at the front and then you, you, know, you kind of go down yeah. and then you come back up. This is going a different way. It's going to include sort of, in the end, nine songs that we've never played before. That's um, exciting as an artist. We're going to be able to change out some songs night to night when we play... Uh, more than one time in one city for example more than more than one night and i think the whole song list ends up being 23 songs long so it's a lot of music covering a lot of ground Can you- how much rehearsal before that are you gonna have to do we uh, we already did eight days of rehearsal here in the studio and johnny the drummer is coming back next week to rehearse with me for five more days wow. um and yeah so it's a lot of rehearsal even though, I mean, about an hour of this material, Julie and I have been playing for a while, you know, as the power trio, we played Three of a Perfect Pair and Dinosaur and Thela Hunjinjit and all the classics like that. Right. That we're Dinosaur's still like your hit single. That. For people that don't yeah. know you, that's usually the first thing people know is Dinosaur yeah. with you, right? Dinosaur. It's, it's, a, it's a good song. I mean, it's really, it's good. People tell me their kids like big, that song. Do you think your biggest yeah. song was Oh Daddy? Oh, no, I don't think so. Not for me. That was just commercial. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, you know what it really was? Oh, Daddy was just a song that I did for my daughter. She wanted to sing with me in the studio. And that accidentally got heard by a record exec who signed me into Atlantic. That's how I got in the door with a big record label, finally. But what was interesting about it, nobody when they put it out, nobody was much playing on the radio. But then the video was picked up by all three video stations in pretty strong rotation. You had VHS or whatever it was. You had MTV. Oh, oh yeah, VH1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. VH1. And then you had, um, uh, what was the, ch- the children's channel? Um, oh, the Nickelodeon. It was the Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nick- I heard the song before. the heck video. out of that song. Yeah. So eventually then the record label said, wow, this video stuff is doing great. We better put the record out. <laughs> so that's how I got a single released, but. Yeah, I remember. I'm, when I, I'm really always been happy that it never was a, a you know, a, a hit to the degree like where I have to play it every night of my right. life for the rest of my life. You know, I always smile uh, when I hear that song. Though I, that, when I first heard it, it was just like a yeah. big smile when I heard that. So I don't know, you know. Yeah, it's fun. I I, I love it. I'm not saying that. It's a happy I moved, moment. I I loved what they did with the video. I really enjoyed yeah. that. I'm really proud of it and everything. But uh, you know, some people get one chance at a hit song. And then for the rest of their life, they have to play just that everywhere you go. Well, 
that would be a drag because I don't have a 10-year-old girl anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the tour, I just get back to it real quickly, 713 uh, starting in um, Minneapolis. Uh, Minneapolis. And I do want to say, this is the best thing. I'm probably going to see it. You end the Ridge Hill Playhouse in Connecticut. That is yeah. my stopping grounds. Oh, so wonderful. I expect you'd be firing on all cylinders. Guy, maybe well, you'll have to meet up to that show at the Ridgefield uh, Connecticut. Yeah, I know he's playing in New York, too. You're playing um, which place? In oh, New yeah, York? The, the Egg. The No, City Winery. Uh, oh, City Winery. Yep, so that's Albany, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah New York City Winery. Yep. But in Albany, yes, we're doing the Egg as well. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's, it's 26 shows, but it's only the first half of the tour. So it's only sort of the East Coast and yeah. part of the Southeast and a little of the Midwest. Um, Next early next year, we will be able to continue on and do the rest mm-hmm. of the United States and maybe even some of the stuff that we we had to go by this time around. Uh, but what happens also for me is after this tour ends almost immediately, I go do four more shows with the Talking Heads Remain in Light Festival shows. And then I jump into the Celebrating David Bowie Band, which is a big yeah. deal, too, because it's yeah, a it's a yeah. big band and we you know it's really great um so are the, the head shows by the way and this year i'm so I'm glad you guys are back together you're still working with them again after the weirdness over the past years you know well it's just me and jerry harrison um uh, we we invited everyone else but no one really could do it <laughs> yeah. um i guess for a number right. of reasons but they're welcome to come anytime they want and jump in but life I think is short we, yeah, I think we really do great versions of all this stuff. Yeah. I think we've we've done a good job with that. The Bowie Show, which I was just talking about, is the same. You have lots of different players. It's a big band. Uh, so I'm not on the stage continually. I maybe think, sing five or six songs. Someone else will sing five or six, whatever is fitting for the different songs. Todd Rundgren is going to be the other guest artist with myself. Nice. And uh, that's great. I just did, by the way, on Todd's new record, I, I did a... I, composed a song together with him oh, wow. and and that i'm really looking forward to that coming out it was it, it was really a good um collaboration i and sent him a song that was not quite finished and he finished it out and it, he made it perfect <laughs> is that the first time you worked with todd no actually the celebrating david bowie tour went to iceland the last time that was the last thing we did i think 2018 mm-hmm. We played two shows there in a beautiful, uh, beautiful venue, and Todd was joined us for that. Very cool. So that's the first time we've actually worked together. But since then, we've become, you know, more acquainted with each other, and uh, I really like him. He's great. He's awesome. Well, he's he's definitely one of our favorites too. Yeah. I want I want to thank you for taking time today. I, I before I give you your one last thought, I do want to say something to the fans about we're talking about buying stuff. If there's merch and you have shirts. And I've always said this, and I actually Dweezil broke it down one time, the cost of shirts. Fans are like, oh, I don't want to pay 40 bucks. I want to get a bootleg. There's a price. It costs a certain amount for the artist to bring it. The gas, the fuel, there's such a, a small amount of profit in it. The artists are not scalping you. They're actually taking a beating on it. The, the venues are taking it, like the mob, they're taking a hit at the percentage. Support the artist at the price of the shirt if you love the artist. Yeah. That's, it's, that's it's just a, me, you know. You know, it's basically for us um, – it's that you like to see someone walking around with with the cover of your record right. on their chest. You know, it's just uh, 
it just, it's almost like a walking advertisement. Maybe someone will say, hey, what does that mean? You know, and then, oh, you've never heard of Adrian Blue and so on. So yeah, yeah. that's the main thing. It's not a financial thing. In fact, it's a hassle to, right. to carry around boxes and boxes of t-shirts to merchandise. And guessing the and, sizes of it. And, you know, uh-huh. you don't have the size. And, the, and, the yeah. ga- and you, you gas because you're pulling the boxes of shirts around it, whether they sell oh, or not. And yeah. the merch, like people don't realize all this stuff. And, and artists like you don't say anything about it. Don't complain about it. But there's so much aggravation. How many the cost of how many colors you can put on a shirt? It's not an exciting shirt. Somebody complains, but they don't want to pay for the printing of it. Like artists don't complain about it because they don't. They're cool. I'm not. An you artist. know, my wife Martha does all there. of this stuff. My wife does. As I said, we're we're we are. It takes yeah. two people to be Adrian Blue. Well, props <laughs> Me to her and my yeah. wife. And she does this merch stuff. She puts it all together. And I watch her just go through fits over this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then and then she goes to the shows and she loves the fans and everything is great. But it's not it's not easy. Mm-hmm. And we don't do it for, you know, money so much as we do it for, for right. the love of the people we have who support us. I mean, I, I, I've said this before, you know, our fans are the greatest and I, I would do anything to make them happy. That's why I'm going out on tour. The truth of it is, with gas prices right now yeah. and with the challenge. With, with COVID still lingering out there, it's a little bit of a risk, to be honest. You, you never know. I mean, some people may not come out. Uh, the cost of doing it all is definitely going to be much higher. But we're going to do it anyway because we love you guys. Well, I want to thank you. And- I think people are going to come because people are dying. They've been cramped up in the house too long people are out loving music again and and they're taking that chance i feel that same way i think you're absolutely right and i'm going to give them the best show i've got in me and it's going to be great cool. so we can end on that note i guess well, I don't thank, know. You that's, yeah, that's, thank you very much thank for coming you on both the show. for doing this i really appreciate it you're spreading right. the word and that's that's the best thing you know so to everyone out there come and see us put uh put elevator in your cd player or on your download <laughs> list and uh Come and see the show. Thank you.